Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 106, Natural Order of Things, on how chemists learned how to find the sequence of nucleotides in DNA. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Way, way back in episode 50, the early 1950s, chemists learned what the three dimensional structure of DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, was. To recap, it's a twisted ladder with the sides of the ladder made of a sugar called deoxyribose plus phosphate groups. The rungs of the ladder are what's called bases, adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. Each side of the ladder has one sequence of bases, which link by hydrogen bonds to the other base on the other side of the ladder. The two bases become a base pair. The sides of the ladder complement each other, so that each side can read off in a sequence to direct synthesis of proteins and ultimately control development and life within cells of organisms. The whole model depends on the slight variation of bases in DNA to account for different traits in a species, like blue eyes versus brown eyes, or moderate variation in DNA to account for differences among species, like longer arms for apes than people, or huge variation in DNA to account for differences among biological families, like leaves on plants versus bones in many animals. Of course, those differences in DNA ought to be detectable, which on the gross level in the 1950s were, so that the ratios of adenine and thymine to cytosine and guanine could be calculated. But to determine the detailed differences among species and proteins, you need to read off the sequence of DNA base by base. That wasn't possible in the 1950s or even the early 1960s. The first attempts to do this used RNA, which is only single-stranded rather than double-stranded, in nucleic acids that were easily procurable, such as bacteria and viruses. Some viruses, by the way, only exist as RNA, not DNA. These pieces of RNA were also easier to sequence because they were usually shorter than DNA in other creatures. RNA in cellular creatures is complementary to the DNA anyway, because RNA was built as a messenger molecule outside of the cell's nucleus from the DNA, or used to construct proteins based on the DNA sequence. Another reason to start with RNA was that it could be cut into bite-sized or science-sized chunks at specific parts of the RNA molecule using known enzymes, RNases. The ACE A-S-E suffix denotes an enzyme. An example of this was published in 1964 by Robert Holley 
James Madison and Ada Zamir from the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Cornell University, in which the researchers talked about how to determine the sequence of up to eight bases in a piece of RNA. The following year, 1965, Holly and friends were able to determine the entire RNA sequence of a yeast transfer RNA. That same year, 1965, Fred Sanger, who we already heard about with his first determination of the amino acid sequence of a protein, published an article using a slightly different method for RNA sequencing. That is, using chromatography to separate portions of RNA, and also growing the RNA in radioactive phosphorus. So that you can detect by radiation which portion has which radioactive nuclei. Using this method, they could find distinct sequential differences between certain RNAs in yeast, bacteria, and animal RNA. Sanger's technique was most fruitful for Belgian molecular biologist Walter Fierce, for in 1972. He was able to sequence an entire RNA gene, the gene coding for a protein that coats a bacteriophage, a virus that infects bacteria. He found the full sequence of bases for an amino acid chain 129 units long, and remember that each amino acid is coded for with three bases. He also published the structure of the full gene. With all the loops, we often simplify RNA as single-stranded, but the RNA structure often loops back on itself to make short helical DNA-like twisted ladder sequences. Then, in 1976, Fierce went even further and discovered the structure of an entire bacteriophage virus. With a length of RNA of 3,569 bases, the virus contains three genes only, and Fierce published its structure with a variety of odd loops and bulges where the DNA loops back on itself. The three genes are for an A protein, a coat protein. He already determined that, and a replicase protein. The replicase, as you guess from the ACE ending, is also an enzyme, and it catalyzes the synthesis of more RNA molecules. That is, reproducing the virus on a mass scale. By the late 1960s, scientists realized that their RNA sequencing methods. Could perhaps be used to tackle the difficult DNA sequence problem. Their first efforts toward this goal were made by Ray Wu at Cornell University. DNA has a directionality in its structure, so that you or an RNA know which direction to read the code. One end of the ladder rung base pair is called the five prime end. With a phosphate attached to the sugar, and the other end of the ladder rung is called the three prime end, with only an OH group attached to the sugar. By 1968 through 
Wu figured out that the five prime ends of bacteriophage virus DNA had twenty extra base pairs sticking out beyond the three prime end of the other complementary ladder side. Then Wu could build a complementary DNA sequence catalyzed by a DNA polymerase using radioactive bases onto this protruding end, extract that sequence, and determine the order of the bases. This was the first actual sequence of DNA base pairs determined, though it was only a tiny section of a full strand. From this initial step. Scientists began sequencing interior short stretches of DNA using the radioactive labeling and DNA polymerase building technique. We'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. In 1975, Fred Sanger and Alan Coulson. Published a new method for sequencing DNA faster, with DNA polymerase, they built up a segment of DNA labeled with radioactive atoms. Then they did two parallel techniques. One was the plus reaction, in which they recopied and built up a DNA sequence using only one radioactive type of base, ultimately giving all sequences ending with that radioactive base. The other was the minus reaction, involving three different radioactive bases, building up DNA sequences with all those three in a group. Then they did electrophoresis, separating all these different short bits into eight different paths by their electrical charges. Then they could guess where all the bases were in that sequence. The whole process is called the plus and minus method. Two years later, in 1977, Sanger made chemical history by sequencing an entire DNA genome of a virus, the bacteriophage Phyx174. I remember seeing an article about this news in the New York Times at the time. The sequence was nearly 5,400 base pairs long and included nine genes. For his work, Sanger got a second Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1980. Quite a rare feat. A second technique to sequence DNA came out in 1976, a year after Coulson and Sanger's way. This other method was invented by Alan Maxam and Walter Gilbert at Harvard University. Like other methods, Maxam and Gilbert took radioactively labeled DNA and broke it up using dimethyl sulfate or hydrazine that cut the DNA sequence at particular base pairs. Then took those short stretches, knowing that the ends had to correspond to a certain base pair. Then, with radioactively labeled base pairs and electrophoresis, 
you can put the sequences back together like a puzzle. These two methods are considered first-generation DNA sequencing methods. They were capped by Sanger's 1977 discovery of a chain termination technique. Here you use similar chemicals to the nucleotides, phosphate, sugar, plus single base. These analogs do not have that 3' OH group, and so can't join up to the opposite end, the 5' phosphate end, of the next nucleotide. Sanger added radioactively labeled analogs into a DNA-building reaction. This gave all sorts of DNA lengths, because with one analog, the DNA construction halts. Sanger used four analogs of the four different bases this way, and did electrophoresis in four different paths, and could reconstruct the sequence. Sanger's chain termination worked for DNA lengths up to around 1,000 bases. To go higher, and pretty much every creature's DNA, even viruses, is longer than that, scientists had to break up long lengths, sequence them, and then reassemble the full structure. The next advance was in the 1980s, when American Carrie Mullis discovered the polymerase chain reaction. This method amplifies exponentially the small amounts of DNA sequences, making it easier to get enough sample to work with. Further research on polymerases added to the possible construction enzymes available. Among the milestones at this time was the 1981 sequencing of one of the genes in flu virus <coughs> by Stanley Fields and Greg Winter, over 1,400 bases out of the full 14,000 bases in the total virus. Then, a whole team of researchers sequenced the common Epstein-Barr virus in 1984 with over 172,000 bases. They found about 84 genes in the DNA. And by 1990, B.G. Barrell heroically published the 229,354 nucleotides found in the cytomegalovirus. In the mid-1980s came another development that links biochemistry and DNA to forensics. The English biochemist Alex Jeffries was interested in the tiny amount of difference between the DNA of different people, perhaps 0.1% of the total DNA. Initially, Jeffries was interested in different blood groups that people have, but shifted to DNA itself. He first examined DNA to build myoglobin, a molecule that brings oxygen to muscles similar to hemoglobin. Myoglobin is found in all mammals, but very valuable to diving marine animals like seals, so he looked at seal myoglobin DNA. Jeffries discovered that there was a repeat sequence in the DNA called a mini-satellite, in which 10 to 60 base pairs repeat a lot. He determined that the mini-satellites were unique, that is, he could tell which seal the DNA came from after sequencing the repeating sections. He found that people also had these repeat sequences, and he wanted to look more carefully at them. 
Jeffries tried slicing the DNA segments into smaller bits to examine them better, but was having problems. He sidestepped the problems by comparing several different DNAs, one from a lab technician, two from her parents, one from a tobacco plant, one from a seal, and one from a cow. He then took a radioactive segment of DNA that matches pieces of the gene he wanted. The radioactive probe matches selectively, and it appeared in his tests as a black band. On September 10, 1984, Jeffries discovered that the radioactive probe matched all repetitive mini-satellites, which gave a series of dark bands unique to each creature. Parts of the bands between parents and child matched, but the other creature's DNA didn't come close. This was the beginning of both DNA fingerprinting in forensics and the wildly popular DNA companies now doing ancestral and genealogical analysis. Meanwhile, there was a new technique that added to the ease of sequencing was adding what chemists called fluorophores. We haven't talked about fluorescence spectroscopy in quite a while, but in the 1980s, this began to become a crucial tool for biochemical research. A fluorophore, technically, is any molecule that fluoresces, but in this case, we take a known fluorescent molecule and get it to attach to different bases in the DNA structure. Chemically, you choose a fluorophore that matches only to one of the four bases, and it fluoresces at a certain wavelength band. If you choose four different fluorescent colors, you can pick out the DNA sequence optically by color. Now we add to the brew of fluorescent molecules, polymerase chain reactions, and spectrometry, the new world of computerized instrumentation. The first such instruments that could pull off a base from a DNA sequence, detect its color by spectroscopy, and then pull off the next base in an automated way were built in the mid-1980s. This sped up the process of sequencing living creatures' DNA hundreds of times from before, allowing larger genomes such as, well, people, with something like 3 billion bases in human DNA. The first at least semi-automatic method was published in 1986 by Leroy Hood. The initial automatic instrument, the ABI-370, for sequencing DNA, was built by Leroy Hood and Michael Hunkapiller at the company Applied Biosystems, Inc. in 1987. It used the Sanger methods plus the fluorescence tagging of DNA method. As I mentioned, the idea to sequence the entire stretch of human DNA emerged in the 1980s. The first symposium to explicitly deal with this idea was in May 1985 in Santa Cruz, California, run by Robert Sinsheimer, chancellor of the university there. The thought was to find some kind of big science applicable to biology and Sinsheimer felt that, as he put it, quote, all of the phenomena of human growth and development and aging are genetically based, unquote. 
everything about being a person, from your eye color and hair color, to what makes us different from apes, to diseases like sickle cell anemia, and the new idea that breast cancer might be genetically based, could be solved if we knew what human DNA's sequence was. But as we know, automated machinery to deal with billions of bases was still in the future in 1985. The next symposium was held in early March 1986 in Santa Fe, New Mexico, under the auspices of the U.S. Department of Energy and hosted by Los Alamos National Laboratory. Workshops there dealt with the emerging technology of DNA sequencing, the medical ethics involved, strategies and costs, and funding the project. So, the Human Genome Project began with the first testing of sequencing methods around 1990, with a plan to release the full DNA sequence of people by 2005. Initial work was done on several organisms to see if sequencing such large segments was even possible. One was a mycoplasma bacterium that infects goats, sheep, and cows. Another was the ubiquitous bacterium E. coli. A third was a tiny worm-like critter called C. elegans. And a fourth was our friend the yeast fungus. Among the major groups working on the human genome was biotechnologist Craig Venter's team at Celera. Venter got involved because he was unhappy about the slow rate of results on the project initially. The first complete sequence for a bacterium, Haemophilus influenzae, which tends to infect babies and children and has nothing to do with influenza virus, was released in 1995 by Venter's team. This was the first actual cellular organism, not a virus, whose DNA was sequenced. H. influenzae is coded with 1,830,138 base pairs of DNA, which is in a single loop. The DNA has over 1,604 genes. And DNA progress continued. The following year, May 1996, 92 separate research groups around the world jointly released the complete DNA sequence of yeast. Because it has 12 million base pairs in 16 different chromosomes and 6,000 genes, the work really had to be divided up. The reason yeast is so important is not only because of, as you know, its prehistoric chemical use to make bread and beer, but because it is classified as a eukaryote organism. Unlike bacteria and blue-green algae, eukaryotes package their DNA inside the cellular nucleus. They also have subcellular sections, or organelles, for specific biochemical jobs. Everything like plants, animals, and people are eukaryotes, so knowing yeast is quite valuable, and comparing yeast's DNA to ours is enlightening. Biochemists continued to move up the biological tree of life to the C. elegans worm, which is not only a eukaryote, but in the kingdom of Animalia, like us. This nematode's DNA sequence, the first for a multicellular creature, was completed by Englishman John Sulston and American Bob Waterston. 
the creature has a hundred million base pairs in its DNA with over 200,000 genes packed into five or six pairs of chromosomes plus a mitochondrial chromosome. As speed and technology improved, the rate of sequencing increased. The last item we discuss in this episode is the sequencing of human chromosomes. Human DNA is packaged into 23 pairs of chromosomes, and number 22 is the second smallest chromosome, with around 51 million DNA base pairs. Sequencing chromosome 22 was also a collaboration, with results announced at the beginning of December 1999. This was the longest single chromosome in any organism sequenced till that date. Results show over 400 proteins coded for, plus other genes. In the medical world, it's now known that this chromosome affects many diseases and conditions, from breast cancer to Ewing sarcoma and even schizophrenia. In the coming episodes in the 21st century, we may talk more of DNA sequencing. In our next episode, we go back to the 1960s through the 1990s and learn of the controversies surrounding who discovered the elements after Lorentzium in the periodic table. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. <laughs> <laughs>